Well, welcome to those of you who are joining us online. It's good to have you be a part of uh, worship with us today, even though you can't physically be with us. We're glad that through the web that you can be here today. And uh, we are diving into a brand new series today that I'm excited about. We're going to be studying the book of Acts, and I don't know how long we're going to be studying the book of Acts. We'll stay there until it's time to focus on the Christmas story, and if we're not done, we'll circle back around when the new year begins. I'm excited about what we're studying right now because it is so incredibly relevant for us. We are a brand new church in its infancy, and we have this wonderful advantage in a way where we are right now because there's really not much to us just yet. You know, we don't have a lot of the trappings of a church that's been around for a long time. Now, you might look at that and say, well, that's a disadvantage because you don't own a building and you don't own land and you don't have a bunch of staff and a bunch of programs. And actually, at the moment, that is a great advantage for us because we have an opportunity to just be at a, a critical point in time and say, oh, God, show us how to be the church that is just right in the middle of this movement that's changing the world. And so as we dive into this this study and uh, beyond just a study, as we dive into this reality that God is calling us to, to be a church that makes a difference in the 21st century, my suggestion to us is that a good beginning point for us is to start with the facts and with a blank slate. And by that, I mean that we need to begin by erasing the chalkboard of our minds. Because I look around the room and I know most of you. And I know enough of your story to know most of us grew up in church or we've been in church long enough that we are thoroughly churched in our thinking. How many of you would say, yes, I have been in a church for a good number of years in my life. Let me see your hands. Yep, that's most of us. There's some good that comes with that, but there's also some baggage and there can be some disadvantages. And it really is going to take some effort. This series is going to be good, but it's going to stretch us starting today. And part of what it's going to challenge us to do is to really work at erasing all the stuff we know about church off of the chalkboard so that with a blank slate, we can really go before God and say, Lord, from your word and by your spirit, tell us how to be the church. I mean, the real church of Jesus Christ that is transforming the world. Because if you're like me, and apparently most of you are, we grew up thinking church was that thing that you go to. Church was that thing that some people who came ahead of us built. They bought some land and they got some bricks and mortar and studs together and they built the church and they put a big pointy thing on top of it. And so everybody would know it was a church. And, and you go to church. And when you go to church, everybody knows that that's supposed to happen somewhere between 9 and 12 on Sunday morning. And if you really get it right, you peg it at 11 o'clock. And church lasts for one hour if you do it right. Because then you beat the Methodists to the cafeteria. You know, you beat them to Ruby Tuesdays or wherever. And that, that's how church is supposed to, to work. And when you do church, you put on your best and you come where we're going to play some instruments or we're going to sing, sing some songs out of a book. And if we are a, a church that's fortunate enough to afford it, we're going to hire us a professional holy man who knows how to speak and tells good jokes and good stories from the Bible. And we're going to put a stage in front of everybody and we're going to line up some chairs and some rows and get them all facing in the same direction. And we're going to have somebody lead us in some pretty singing about Jesus. 
And we're going to listen to the professional holy man tell us God's stories and make us laugh and cry all in the same service. And then we're going to go home and live our lives for the next 167 hours. And then next Sunday, we're going to come back and hit play again. And that's church. That is church in the Bible Belt, isn't it? And if you really love Jesus, you come for Sunday school for an hour before church. Now, I know we say all that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the truth be told, there is a bunch about that system that is ingrained into every one of us who spent a lot of years in it that you might not design church the way I just described it, but there are some things about what you grew up in that without meaning to, we automatically believe, well, church has to include this. In church, we have to have a budget that looks like this or a staff that looks like that or a building that looks like this. These are the things that define the way church is supposed to work. And I would dare say there is virtually nothing that I have named in the last two or three minutes that has any root whatsoever in the Scriptures. The movement that Jesus started that exploded on the scene in the opening pages of the book of Acts with the coming of the Holy Spirit is the most significant movement on the planet. For the last 2,000 years, it's had greater impact than any other organization, group, or nation. There is no kingdom that has come close to rivaling the influence of the church in the world. And there is no force on earth today that can rival the influence of the church and the impact of the church. Now, we tend to lose sight of that. We get a distorted perspective of this because we live in America and we've known the American expression of the church. And thankfully, historically, the American church has been a, a real uh, powerful force on the planet, primarily because we have been the primary sending church on the planet over the, the past 150 or 170 years. And that has been the great work of God in and through the American church is that we were primarily through the 20th century and even part of the 19th century, we were the primary sending nation on all of planet Earth. The vast majority of missionaries who hit the mission field in our parents' and grandparents' lifetimes and in our lifetimes, they were sent out by the American church, and that's, that's been a huge part of our contribution. That's a thing that we got right. But now in our lifetimes, there has been a significant turn so that the church in America is not the moving force that it was. We have gone from being a real mission-minded church that was looking at reaching the world with the gospel and ushering in the kingdom to being a church that is rapidly moving toward uh, being in a survival mode. Churches are just trying to figure out how to get by because five and six churches in America are either plateaued or they're in decline, either zero growth or negative growth. Five out of six. Most American churches are trying to figure out how to hang on, how to be able to continue to pay for their building, keep their building, keep some level of staff, trying to figure out how to cut back. This is just the modern American church experience. And we look at that because it's what we're familiar with and we think, okay, that's church. That's what church looks like. And I want to tell you, we need to take a big step back and see the church from a global perspective and from God's perspective because I will tell you, the church today is the most significant force on the planet. It is transforming the population of this planet. It's happening. It's happening today. It's happening in China. It's happening in India. It's happening in Korea. It's happening across the African continent. It's happening in major parts of South America. It's happening in Central America. The church is on the move in spite of the fact that we've lived in a season where the church has in large part grown very stale and has become in much more of a survival mode here. And so 
for us, the people who are Freedom Church, the critical question here is, how do we make sure that we are attached to this great movement that's changing the world instead of just turning out another little Lego version of the American church so that we'll occupy another street corner and we'll create an organization that outlives us? Who in the world wants to sign up for that? I won't pastor it. I, I won't. I mean, I, I, I would leave that and go give my life to some other expression of the church. I, I'd go find another way to serve God if all I was going to do is just create an organization that was going to be defined by a little piece of property, a little building, a little group of people who just held on like a Christian club that held some Bible studies and kept our kids in a safe place for an hour or two a week. Who wants to be a part of that? I've got better things to do with my time. You certainly do. How do we make sure that this thing that is being birthed isn't just another organization on another street corner, that we're a part of this wonderful, tremendous global movement that's taking place? Well, we better unlearn a bunch of what we thought defined the church and let the Holy Spirit, through the Scriptures and just through His voice, teach us how to be the church. And, and I'm going to really challenge us to think strategically. We're not going to unpack a lot of this today. In fact, I'm not even going to preach the whole sermon today. But I really want you to begin to think about, okay, if you were in charge, given the facts that we're about to cover, if you were in charge, what would you design that would have the greatest impact? Let, let's just lay out some of the facts. We live in a time today when there are about 7.3 million people on the planet, seven and a quarter, 7.3, somewhere in there, billion people on the planet. And of that number, about a third, somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.3 billion profess faith in Christ. So this movement has been gaining steam when it started, uh, as we're about to read in Acts 1, there were 120 believers by the end of the first century. A little over 4% of the planet was Christian today. About 32 or 33% of the planet is Christian and the movement continues to grow. About 2.3 billion believers. That means there are 5 billion, billion, 5,000 million unbelievers at least. And of that 5 billion, 1.5 billion have no access to the gospel and have never heard of Jesus. It's not just that they haven't gotten saved. They have no, no entry point to be able to hear about the gospel. We have a hard time getting our heads around numbers like 1.5 billion. There are 319, 320 million Americans today. So think every man, woman, and child in America today times five. And you'll begin to grasp how many people have no access to the gospel whatsoever. Multiply it by about 15 or 16, and that's how many people clearly don't know Christ. They don't make any pre pretense of knowing Christ. That many lost people in the world. Beyond the lostness of the world, we live in a time today where 3 billion people live on $2 a day or less. That is struggling to survive. And 1.2 billion live in abject poverty. I mean, just barely able to even eke out a living and, and stay alive. Because they live on less than a dollar a day. 1.2 billion. A million people a day are illiterate, cannot read or write, and that helps to hold them in, the, in bondage to, to poverty. A billion people a day have no access to clean water, and so they, they live with constant sickness. They, they watch their neighbors and their children constantly sick and dying from easily preventable diseases because they have no access to clean water. 900 million people today got up today 
starving. They will go to bed hungry tonight because they are dying of malnutrition. Now, thankfully, that number is actually gradually declining. We are beginning to make headway in, in dealing with the numbers of people who are starving. And they're not starving because we can't produce enough food. Farmers today produce enough food to provide a diet of 2,700 calories for every person on the planet. That's enough for all of us to be fat. And we're doing our part in America to get there. We just have not mobilized the resources to make sure everybody is fit. And the clean water thing, oh my goodness, you'd be amazed at how easily from a financial standpoint we could have clean water for virtually everybody on the planet if we simply mobilize the resources that we have in the right direction. And you may say, well, why are you talking to us about hunger and poverty and illiteracy and clean water as well as people who were lost? Because Jesus cared about these kinds of things. Because Jesus cares about suffering men, women, and children. And you cannot bring the gospel to people in a way that's going to change culture unless you care about the people who are in need, what they're struggling with, and unless you work to alleviate those things. So I lay that out that there is just some of the facts for the day. Now, you can hear all that and go, oh my goodness, that's, that's so beyond us. Here we are, we're just a couple of hundred people on the eastern shore of Mobile Bay. And I mean, how in the world can a couple of hundred people have any kind of impact on that vast need in the world? Well, here's the, the question that I want you to have to wrestle with on the front end. If you were in charge and your one goal was to have maximum impact on all of the needs that I just laid out there. Billions of lost people, people hungry, people in poverty, people in desperate need of just things like clean water. What would you design that would have maximum impact on them? What would it look like? Would, it, would you mobilize most of your financial resources to create a really top-notch facility complete with gymnasium and walking track here on the eastern shore where we desperately need more of those? What would you spend your money on? What would you mobilize the people to do? What would be the primary thing that you would try and get people to do? Would you, would you try and create bigger and bigger gathering halls with more and more seats so that we can make sure we put more and more butts in those seats? Would that be the high, holy achievement of that organization to get as many people in that room as you could for an hour a week? Would that be your primary aim? Would, would you make it really revolve around the professional holy man? So that we have a minister. Make sure that we get a really good minister so that this organization has someone who ministers well. Or would you design something that is much more about every person being a minister? Where the gathering on Sunday morning or whenever you got together wasn't considered the measure of success but what we did outside of our gathering place was the focus of what we were about and that that was the measure of our effectiveness and success. How would you plan the spending of the money? How would you structure this thing so that when you were done, when your life was over, it really left a mark? It's worth thinking about, isn't it?
And there's not a real easy answer that just presents itself. This is what we have to wrestle with. Now, I'll suggest to you today, and this is really the jumping off point as we dive into Acts, that the best place that we can begin today is by offering God a blank check. Before we talk about strategy, before we talk about form or anything else, that we need to give God just a blank check with our lives and with this church. And if we're really going to connect with this movement that's having such an impact, that we're just going to need to be willing to say to God, we hold nothing back. Lord, you fill in the blank. We, we just sign off on whatever you say. You, you take us individually. Take me, take my finances, take whatever I control or influence. Take us collectively. Everything's fair game. Lord, we'll start anything, we'll stop anything. We'll take whatever we've got in the bank, we'll take whatever we have as resources. Whatever you would say, we will take it and do with it as you instruct us, no matter how unconventional it looks, because we believe that you have a better plan. We believe that you would do something that goes far beyond what we could ever imagine or envision, and he's doing it. Oh, how he's doing it. God just gave me one of those random reminders this week. Somebody that I virtually never see anymore called me up and said, Hey, could, could you sit down and meet with a friend of mine who is an, uh, an African apostle, uh, a church planter, over 12 churches. He's Nigerian, and he's visiting the States. Would you sit down with him? I said, Sure. And we sat down on Tuesday and uh, just visited for a good long while. His name's Isaiah. And... It just refreshed my heart to get to hear just a fresh glimpse of what God is doing in other places and how powerfully God is using the church and is on the move. And just to hear from a brother who has planted 12 churches and who leads 12 churches and to see where millions of people are coming to faith in Christ in a country like Nigeria. And I don't know, I mean, you may hear a country like that and just think, you know, what am I supposed to do with that? What does that mean? Do you realize Nigeria is the seventh most populous nation on the face of the earth today? And the Spirit of God is moving power for there. I mean, the stories that he shared of what God is doing, resurrection from the dead, of healings, of just massive numbers of people coming to faith in Christ. So, so wonderfully encouraging. I'm chasing a rabbit here. I'll share one story that to me is just a, just a neat story of the power of God. He had the Spirit of God clearly speak to him and tell him to leave where he was to go to another part of Nigeria and to plant a church. By the way, that is one thing God is doing a whole lot today is he is birthing new churches. There is a new wineskin work that's going on. We better get in on that. That's, that's part of what we need to know on the front edge. But he said, God led him to this place and it was a very dark place where you know, voodoo, black magic, all that stuff ruled the day there. And there was this one witch doctor that everybody feared. And he, he pretty much ruled in that area. And there were no churches. And so when he came there to plant a church, he was told immediately, you cannot come here because this witch doctor will oppose you. And he, he can take you out. You know, this guy's had people killed. He, he is just a bad man. You can't plant a church here. So anyway, it comes to the showdown where the witch doctor shows up and says, has this exchange with him. What have you come here to do? I've come here to plant a church. And, and the witch doctor is like, you cannot do that. I say you cannot do that. And so the, the witch doctor 
had supernatural power. I mean, he had the reputation of supernatural power, which they often do because they, they're possessed by evil spirits which carry supernatural power. And so the, the thing that everybody feared about him was his handshake because if he shook your hand, if he got his hands on you, then if, if he were bringing, you know, the hex upon you, you would have a stroke within the next week. That was his thing, that he would cause you to have a stroke. And so the man said to him, you know, if you were so sure God has led you here, then why don't you shake my hand? And Isaiah, he, he grinned and he said, God has given me more, more wisdom than that. I did not want to shake his hand. And he said, you know, don't test God on these things. And he said, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't shake his hand. And the guy kept making a show. I was going, you know, if your God is so powerful, you would not be afraid to shake my hand. And they're like, don't shake the guy's hand. You, you're going to have a stroke. And he's like, so I'm not just going to be like just flipping about this. And he said, as I sat there back and forth and people are watching and, you know, the guy's like, you know, see, you're afraid, you're afraid to shake my hand. You know what will happen. And he said, and then the Lord prompted me and said, shake the man's hand. You, you reach out. I, I have a covering for you. Shake the man. So, so he, he shook the man's hand and the, and the witch doctor was kind of taken aback and they finished that exchange and, the, and they went on. And about a week later, somebody sent word to Isaiah, um, would you be willing to please pray over the witch doctor? Because he has had a stroke this week. And they brought, they brought the witch doctor to the pastor to pray over him. And he was healed. And he said the witch doctor's life was so transformed that he bought the new church their first set of drums to use in worship. So I, I want to tell you, when we talk about the power of God that is transforming lives and transforming communities... So many times in the American church, we have no concept. The book of Acts is incomplete. And when you, when you read it to its end, you realize Luke just went, Shoomp. I'm just going to stop writing. The story goes on. In fact, the last uh, thought was, and you know, it concludes, uh, and continued unhindered. Unhindered is the final word. And it's like, and that is, that's what's happening. The church is just going on unhindered. The gospel goes forth unhindered. It's happening today. All the stuff you read about in Acts, it's happening all over the place. We just tend to live in an expression of the church where we're like, uh, I'm not sure we believe in that anymore. We think those things may have ceased with the apostles. Well, let me clear that one up for you. It didn't. It's going on on a massive scale. We need to get in on it. And if we're going to get in on it, we're going to have to sign a blank check that says, Oh God, whatever you want. Sunday morning might not always look like what Sunday morning has looked like. You let the Holy Ghost loose in here. You may not get to sit in that seat and for 45 minutes, or however long I talk, listen to the professional holy man stand up and talk about the Bible. There are going to be some times... He's going to shake this thing up. And I'll guarantee you he's going to shake up what happens when we walk out those doors. Are you willing to start with a blank check and say, Oh God, we mean business in our lives and in this church. You do what you want to do. Shake it up. Please don't let us be what so many churches have settled for. Please don't let us make another one of those. Don't let us settle. Don't let us settle for ordinary lives. Don't let us settle for being an ordinary church. We offer you a blank check. Take us and do what you want to with us. Well, Acts chapter 1 is where we start today, and we will barely, barely, barely start into that. But we'll go ahead and dive in and, and read the opening of Acts. If you've got your Bibles, join me in Acts 1-1, where Dr. Luke, who I truly believe is the greatest historian in the ancient world in any culture. 
He was extraordinary. He gives us two volumes of his writings in the scriptures. We begin with the first verse of volume two, the Acts of the Apostles, which might have been better titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. In my former book, Theophilus, we don't know if there was a specific individual named Theophilus or if he's just saying that to all of us because Theophilus means lover of God. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen. And after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about what else? He spoke about the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus talked about all the time. We better get real clear on the kingdom of God. It's what Jesus talked about all the time. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem. That's the last thing they wanted to hear, by the way. It's the one city more than any other on planet Earth they did not want to be in. It's where Jesus had been lynched, had been murdered just a few weeks before. And even though he was raised from the dead, the crowd that hated him, oh, they were still on the move. They were wanting to stamp out this movement. And for at least a year, the disciples had been scared to death to go to Jerusalem because they knew all of the... The crowd that hated them the most, that held power, were in Jerusalem. In fact, like in John 11, one of the earlier visits to Jerusalem, late in Jesus' ministry, when they were going there because of Lazarus' death, and the disciples were grumbling and like, we don't want to go with... I mean, we can't go back to Jerusalem anymore. Somebody's going to die if we go to Jerusalem. They read that right, by the way. They understood what was going on. And finally, Thomas, the one we call the doubter, spoke up and said, let's just do it. Let's just go and die with him in Jerusalem. They do not want to be in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, hey, don't leave Jerusalem. <laughs> What's the first thing, by the way, the disciples did whenever Jesus rose from the dead and first appeared to them? They hightailed it out of Jerusalem. They took off. They went back to the Sea of Galilee. They went to their old ways of life. And he has regathered them in Jerusalem and says, don't leave here, but you wait for the gift that my father promised, which you heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days... You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? We're going to get to unpack that next week and beyond. So when they met together, they asked him their age-old question that they've been wondering for three and a half years. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? <laughs> I mean, you know what they're asking. From the start... As they started thinking, we believe this guy's the Messiah. Well, see, they came just like we came into this situation with all these preconceived ideas about, oh, yeah, church. We know about church. We know how that works. We know what that's supposed to look like. Well, they thought about Messiah. Oh, we know Messiah. We know the kingdom story. Messiah's going to come. He's going to take charge. He's going to set up a throne. He's going to have some place that he rules from. And the Romans are going to be kicked out. And we're going to have power. He's going to have the ultimate power. But we're going to become a world power. And we're going to possess power instead of being an overrun people. When do we get that power, Jesus? Is it? now and he said to them it's not for you to know the times or dates that the father has set by his own authority there is a time coming when he's going to reign on earth and sit on a throne and he is going to exert his authority and yes that power will be demonstrated but here's what he says about that but you you will receive power it's not going to be power in the form that you're thinking. It's not going to be because I go set up my throne in Jerusalem next week. But you're about to receive power. But it'll be power through the Holy Spirit so that you'll be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Oh, my goodness. There's one place on earth you cannot witness about Jesus. It's in Jerusalem. He says, well, that's where we're going to start. 
You're going to stay here until that power comes on you. And then you're going to speak up loud and proud in the streets. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And then he begins to draw concentric circles of influence. And then in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the very uttermost parts of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hit him from their sight. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. When suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. It's safe to say they were angels. Men of Galilee, they, they asked, why do you stand here looking up into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. And the disciples collectively went, hmm, I wonder when. As has every generation in the last 2,000 years. They're wondering if it'll be that week or the next. The events of the, the cross and the resurrection all happened in one weekend. The cross, the resurrection, and the ascension and all of the appearances in between happened in a span of six weeks. So it's like surely within the next month or sometime this year, he's going to come back and all this is going to unfold. When's this going to happen? And the angels are basically saying, why stand around waiting and wondering? He will come back. But now it's time to do what he told you to do. What did he tell them to do? He said, stick around in Jerusalem until this next big event happens. You're going to get baptized with the Holy Ghost. So they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. About a Sabbath day walk from the city. So they took that three-quarter mile walk from the Mount of Olives. It's a big, it's more than a hill. It's a small mountain. But they walked down the Kidron Valley over into the city. That's a, a, a scary thought, going back into the, such a dangerous place when they arrived. They went upstairs to the room where they had been staying. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. In other words, the remaining 11 of the 12. Judas Iscariot killed himself. The remaining 11 gathered with the other believers. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Interesting that Jesus' immediate family become key leaders in the early church, and they were among the first group of faithful disciples. And in verse 15, it says, In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And I'm going to stop right there in mid-sentence. We won't dive into anything Peter said yet. 120 gathered in a room in Jerusalem, praying and waiting and having no clue what to do next. I mean, everything has been centered on the person of Jesus. I mean, the physically present, all-powerful person of Jesus. And now he's not there. All we know to do is what Jesus said to do. And he said, get together and pray and listen for what happens next. Wait for what happens next. And the Holy Spirit's going to take it from there. Well, next week, you'll have to come back for part two as we dive into what happens from there. But as our beginning point, we ask the question, all right, so where do we start in following in this movement that was launched in Acts 1? And, and again, such a neat and intriguing picture that it's 120 the whole world is lost. Where do you begin? 120 people, that's all you've got. There's already about double that number that are affiliated with Freedom Church. And we look at the world and go, 5 billion lost people. 1.2 billion people living in abject poverty. All those numbers. You know, where do we begin? Well, we begin where they begin. They got on their faces and they began to cry out and wait for God and what the Spirit of God would do. That's a great beginning point, isn't it? And we're going to begin by looking at what the Scriptures say. And in 
chapter 1, verse 1 of Acts, what we find that Luke pointed out as he goes back and, and tries to con- tell us a condensed version of this story, he begins by saying, you know, Theophilus, in my former book, I told you all of the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, there is a huge implication in that, and, and this is it. Nothing in the book of Acts will really matter in terms of us developing a plan and following what God's wanting to do if we don't take as a prerequisite what Luke has already told us in the gospel. In other words, everything that's going to happen in Acts that the Holy Spirit is going to do, you really can't get in on that unless you take in the heart of what Luke has communicated to us in his earlier volume, the gospel of Luke, of the life, the ministry, the teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, I'm fixing to paint with the broadest brush you'll ever hear me use in preaching, but I'm going to try and sum up in three statements the heart of what Luke said that the core of Jesus' message and ministry were. We'll, we'll say the core of his teachings. And that's, that's hard to do because Jesus said a lot. But if you read through Luke's first volume, the Gospel of Luke, I think you'll find that these three things ring loudly as core truths that Jesus taught. That Here's the deal. Nothing that we will plan or attempt to do will amount to a hill of beans if we don't respond to these core teachings, these three things. The first one is this. That Jesus' target was and is a lost and hurting world. Luke is the one who tells us about Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus the chief tax collector in Luke 19. And that whole encounter where, you know, the people are all like, ooh, he's got tax collector cooties. Why would you go and eat with a, a man like that? He's a nasty sinner. You left us all to go be with him. And Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. Jesus came for the lost. It was Luke who tells us about in, in uh, chapter 5, Verses 30 and following, how the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained against Jesus' disciples. This is the religious crowd. This is the church crowd. And they said, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We can't impact the world. We can't be a part of this great movement unless we come to a place of truly being burdened for lost people like Jesus was. And this is actually a tremendous hurdle for us. It's a tremendous hurdle for me. I say to you by way of confession, this is one of the great struggles of my life is as a pastor, I wind up being around you. The people who are a part of Freedom Church. And I love that. I enjoy that. Y'all are my favorite people to be around. The people who go to Freedom Church. And yet that is a blessing and a problem all rolled into one. Because I'm here to, to serve as a shepherd and a leader and, and a disciple and all those different things with you. But that never negates the fact that I'm left here, just like you, to reach and impact the world. I'm left here, just like you, to reach the lost. And without meaning to, I'm constantly finding myself living an insulated, isolated life where it saves people around me. It's church people around me. And I can't reach the world. I can't influence the world unless I'm intentional to always be looking for, praying for, reaching out to, building relationships with lost people. Now, in that, we have to understand the balance. 
and going after lost people, you can't marry them. That's, we covered that last week. We won't revisit that one. But, you know, we, that's not who our best, most trusted friends are going to be. Your best friend that's going to really influence you greatly doesn't need to be a lost person. But you need relationships with lost people. You need redemptive relationships with lost people. Jesus was constantly after lost people. And it shook the system up in his day because he didn't relate well to church people. And that sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? It's like, no, Jesus was so nice. Jesus related well to everyone. No, he didn't. Church people drove him crazy. And he drove them double crazy. They hated him. They hated him so bad they had to kill him. I mean, it's all they could talk about for about the last three years of his ministry, which was only three and a half years. They're just all the time figuring out how to kill this guy because he is messing up our system. We don't sing the doxology anymore. He doesn't dress up for church. I mean, he just, he does not get it. What is wrong with it? He doesn't sing in the choir. He doesn't do any of the stuff that God likes. He doesn't wear a phylactery. He doesn't do any of the God stuff. And he goes around blowing up the ideas that we teach. Yep, that was Jesus. And when they would go, what is your deal? You don't do any of the stuff right. And I mean like rule number one is don't associate with people who are not like us. We would never eat or hang out with a Gentile tax collector, a sinner. And it seems like that's all you do is hang out with sinners. And Jesus is going, yep, you got that right, because that's exactly who I came for. He said, I didn't come for people who don't need anything. I didn't come for people who think that they're well. I didn't come to help religious people be more religious. I came for broken people. I came for lost people who act messed up because they are messed up. And I came because I have the power to set that right. And the church, without meaning to many times, and sometimes on purpose, has basically said, y'all come to our nice, clean, sterile environment. Please dress up before you do because we dress up. Please use nice language because we use nice language. Please act like you've got a healthy marriage because we pretend like that too. Please act like none of you are hooked on drugs or alcohol or pornography or anything like that because that just doesn't feel good. That feels icky. So while we're in here, we're going to sing Jesus songs. And we're going to tell Jesus stories. And we're going to all say, bless you, bless you. How are you doing? I'm blessed. I'm blessed. We're going to talk like that until we get out of here. And then when we're driving home, we're going to cuss like sailors. Because that's how we talk at home and at work. This is what Christian people do. And Jesus came in and he's like, every time I teach, I'm going to put another stick of dynamite under that system. And with my death and resurrection, I'm going to press the plunger and I'm going to blow that sucker to smithereens because I didn't come to feed that system. I came for lost people. I came for broken people. I came for people who were hooked on porn, who were hooked on dope, who were hooked on themselves, who were hooked on their cars and their houses, whose lives are just jacked up. They can't do a lasting relationship because they're so fouled up. And I love people like that. That's who I came for. And to us, he says, you want to follow me? You better learn to love messed up people like that. And church, you want to be a redeeming influence on the world? You better welcome people like that in here. If we're going to get together and this be a high holy hour, it better be a collection of broken people who are being redeemed by Jesus through the work of his spirit and the church. This better be a place that helps people whose lives really are messed up, who helps in tangible ways to get us from a place of brokenness closer to wholeness. 
And this is a real problem. It's a problem for me. I bet it is for a bunch of you. I don't know enough lost people. And I'd love to say that's because most everybody in Baldwin County is saved. That would be a fat lie. Because Baldwin County is the second most unchurched county in Alabama. 60% of Baldwin County is unchurched. Three out of every five people that I run into are lost people. I just don't take the time often enough to build relationships with lost people. I have to be intentional to reach out and connect with people in the gym and different places that aren't church and build relationships. And I, folks, we just can't run past this. We will have almost no redeeming influence in the world if we don't build relationships with lost people. So here's the question. Who are you praying for right now that's lost and you're just praying day after day for God to save them? Who do you know? And I'm not talking about your family off in other places. Great. Pray for lost family members. Who do you know that you are connected with? They live in your circle. Who do you know that's on your heart that you could reach out to them this week? Who are you involved with that you're praying for them to be saved? Who could you make a point this week to have coffee with them? To go to dinner with them? To invite them to church next week? To talk to them about life and about faith and ultimately about Jesus. Now, I'll tell you, it took me a long time to catch on to this, but I, I finally figured out a long time ago that for many years in my life, I was lousy at witnessing. I was bold. I'd talk to people about Jesus right and left. Just didn't find a lot of people wanted what I was offering. It's like, I can tell you what you need to do to get straightened up is essentially kind of the message. You need Jesus. <laughs> for some reason, people weren't buying that. You know, they just weren't signing up for that. I was crazy bold when I was young in that. And the lesson that I had to learn is one that we all have to catch on to, and that is people really aren't interested in that message. Most people aren't interested in that Jesus message, as good as Jesus is, if all we have to offer them on the front end is to tell them, what we know that they need. They don't care what we know until they know just how much we care. And that, that becomes the real rub for us. You know, do we care enough to actually get involved in their lives? It's like I, I was one of those, man, put me next to a stranger on an airplane. Put me next to a stranger, you know, somewhere out in public. And I will, I learned to twist that conversation to let them know how much they needed Jesus Never taking time to find out what else they needed. How they were hurting. And what they were struggling with. You know, sometimes people don't get that Jesus is the answer. Or that that's the need in their life. Because the deafening roar that they hear is the cry of an aching heart over a marriage that's just ended. Over having just been cheated on over having just failed, over a child who's critically ill. Over, I mean, you just it goes on and on. The things that happen in life that it's like, I don't know how to cope with this. I don't have a system or a plan for dealing with this. And the only thing that could help them in that moment is somebody who could listen and minister to that hurt. And you minister to that hurt, and suddenly I'll tell you somebody whose heart is wide open to the message of a God who loves them and who cares about their hurts and their deepest needs. Which brings us to the second 
thing that Luke summarizes for us, and that is that advancing the kingdom of God is really the primary reason for letting us stay on earth. I mean, of all the things in the New Testament, and there really are five main things that the New Testament spells out that we're here to do, we sum them up with the words discipleship, evangelism, worship, fellowship, and ministry, but just suffice it to say, all the stuff that we're supposed to be about as Christians, you can do all of it in heaven forever and ever, and you will except one thing. Reaching the lost, bringing them into the kingdom, and along the way, bringing the kingdom into their lives. Now, those two work together, but they're not the same thing. When we share the gospel and help people come to faith in Christ, they come into the kingdom. But much of the time, before that can happen, we have to bring the kingdom to them. And we have this wonderful privilege of bringing the kingdom of God into the lives of people. And you might say, well, what does that mean? And how do we do that? All this talk about the kingdom. Jesus began to map it out when he stood up and launched his, his public ministry in Luke chapter 4. Again, these are the summaries of Luke about Jesus. And in Luke four eighteen and 19, if this passage is an underlined, starred, highlighted in your Bible, please do so. Because this is one of the most core teachings and summaries of Jesus. Luke four eighteen and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. To who? To the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I love that last. I'm glad he added that last little thought in there. That it's the season of God's favor, because so many times it sounds like the message of the church has been one of God's disfavor. It's like. Hey, world, we're talking to you for God here. And those of you that are gays, God hates you. And those of you who have committed adultery, God hates you. And those of you who struggle with other sins, God hates that. And Jesus said, I didn't come to bring a message of hate. I came to tell you about the favor of God. The good things that God brings. God has good news for poor people. God has help for people who are suffering physically. God has freedom that he wants to bring to people who are living in bondage. And Jesus said, that's exactly when the Holy Spirit came upon me recently at my baptism. That's what he's empowered me to do. I now have the ability to alleviate suffering. I have the ability to bring hope and compassion. To bring justice and help for the poor. That's the favor of God. That is the kingdom of God lived out. People get saved when they experience the realities of the kingdom of God. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't want that? This is our calling. This is why we remain. So that we can bring the kingdom of God in on earth and bring people on earth into the kingdom. In chapter 12 of Luke, he quotes Jesus where he says, Don't set your heart on what you'll eat or what you'll drink and all this stuff that you think that you need. Don't worry about it, for the pagan world runs after such things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first His kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions, give to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will never wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never be exhausted such a cool picture he says you know what the world does religious people do this we 
We mostly want to hang on to our stuff. We want to make sure we're going to be taken care of, make sure we've got a healthy retirement, make sure we're going to be okay. And along the way, we're ignoring a vast portion of the world that truly is starving or living in poverty. Their needs aren't being met. But that's okay. Because we've got to make sure our families and our future and our retirement are secure. And Jesus said, while you're busy trying to hold on to that, you're doing exactly what the pagans do. And he said, if you would just be willing to take your hands off of some of those resources and actually be generous with people who are in need, can I tell you what would happen? He said, that would create for you purses that will last for eternity. That would generate reward for you that you would enjoy throughout all of eternity. But it only happens when you're generous. And when you're generous, then you can bring the help of the kingdom to bear. I'm telling you, when you actually begin to put pencil to paper and realize what we have the capacity to do, it's so wild to consider. I mean, like I gave you a bunch of big numbers, but like one of the numbers that I gave you was that 1.2 billion people today live on a dollar a day or less. Well, there are 2.3 billion Christians. If we just, just the wealthiest half of the Christians on earth, of which all of us would be a part. If all of us invested $1 per day, sowed it into the lives of the poor, there are all kinds of mechanisms for doing this, World Vision, Compassion International, and other great organizations to help us do this. If you spent a dollar a day on alleviating poverty and feeding those who are in need, we would double the incomes of the poorest. I mean, there would be nobody left on earth who lived on a dollar a day. We would double their standard of living. By giving a dollar a day. You think you couldn't make a difference? You can change a family forever. And you won't even be inconvenienced along the way. Oh, by the way, you will get inconvenienced. Because he wants you to do more than change one family. But you've got to start somewhere. There's no reason for us to be left here. If we're not going to bring the kingdom to people here who need it. The third and final thing that I'll say and summing up what Luke said the teachings of Jesus were, is that Jesus demands total surrender from his followers. Total surrender. In Luke 9, Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. Key line in that. He must deny himself. What, what does that mean? Deny himself. It means all kinds of things that you could have controlled and that you probably have controlled and enjoyed and held on to and said, hey, that's mine. Don't mess with that. That you've got to be willing to allow yourself to be denied of that. You give up control of that so that others can be ministered to. I mean, th this was the big stumbling block. Following Jesus was always a costly thing. And Jesus said, if you think you're going to be a part of this movement, you've got to be willing to let go of things. You've got to be willing to give generously of your resources, of your time. That means you deny yourself. Some of the things that you would have done that were just selfish pleasures or indulgements, selfish things that we just, I've got to have this. I enjoy this too much. It doesn't mean that you don't get to own any possessions, but it means that you don't get to live where you say, well, God can't touch this. Nobody else can have that. You've got to deny yourself. To be any part of this movement. In Luke 14. And I'm, I'm just giving you one verse in Luke 14. Man this teaching will knock your socks off. It's so in your face. Luke 14.33. Jesus says in the same way. Any of you who does not give up everything he has. 
cannot be my, my disciple. This idea of nominal Christianity, of, of I'm going to give God an hour a week. You know, the average American Christian, give God an hour a week coming to church every other week. I'm going to give God 2% of my income, which is what the average church-going Christian does. This idea of this nominal commitment to Christ, Jesus had no concept of that. He, he wanted no part of that. He, he essentially was making it clear, I don't, I don't declare any kind of ownership or connection to that. Nominal discipleship does not exist in the kingdom of God from Jesus' teachings. I mean, good luck finding it. It's not there. Anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Does it get any tougher than that? The end of Luke 9, Luke says that as Jesus was going along and, and there was a crowd around him one day, and one of the followers made a great declaration, and one we would cheer for. He said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you need to understand, birds of the air have nests to live in. Foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I don't have a house that I call my own. You better take that into account. Well, thanks for that big pat on the back, Jesus. Jesus looked at another and said, you come and follow me. And the guy said, I'll do that. But first, I need to go back because my dad's still alive. And I need to go be with him until I've buried him and collected my inheritance. You let me go and get my dad buried and all that squared away. And from then on, Jesus, I will follow you. And Jesus said, you let the dead bury their own dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And another one spoke up and said, I will follow you, Jesus. Just let me go back and tell my parents goodbye. I won't wait around for the inheritance and for their death. I just want to tell them bye. And Jesus said, no man, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is even fit for service in the kingdom of God. You know what he's saying? He's saying, if you sign on for what I'm calling you to, if you're going to be a part of this movement and you say, yep, I, I am embracing this call that you're placing on my life. If you step into that, you put your hand to the plow, but then you start looking back and going, but Lord, I mean, I certainly don't want to have to diminish my standard of living. I mean, I still get to keep a house that's five times the size of what anybody in any other part of the world would use for a family my size. I'm, I mean, surely I, I wouldn't have to like get rid of a gas guzzling SUV or any portion of what I have in the bank. I mean, God, I... I this is a pretty nice life, but I'm telling you, of what I have left over, Lord, I want to help you plow this row. I want to help you get the job done with what's left over. And he says, once you put your hand to the plow and then you start looking back and thinking about trying to hold on to the life that you have known up until now, you aren't fit for service in the kingdom of God. Think again. Church, I love you. I have got to speak truth to us. If this church is going to be anything resembling the great movement of God that has been changing the world for 2,000 years, we can't be another middle-class, comfortable American church where we say we're going to hold on to our lifestyle, but with everything that's left over, God, we'll give you some time and we'll give you some money. We have to be a people who say we are left here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to advance the kingdom of God, to reach the lost, to serve the poor, to make a difference with our lives and if that's not what we're going to do, then let's just agree to disband and find something else to give ourselves to. You can't agree to this because I said to. 
there's only one thing that would make it worth it. Jesus is what makes it worth it. Jesus didn't make a little difference in my life. He made all the difference. You don't know the darker sides of my nature. My life would be a wreck apart from Christ. Jesus didn't give me a little help. Jesus changed my life. I'm a different person today because Jesus is in my life. And for Him to do that, it cost Him everything. He didn't come and give a little teaching. He didn't just give me an example. He gave His life so that I could be free. I would live in darkness today apart from Jesus. And I don't think you're any different. Jesus gave everything so that we would not live in bondage and tyranny. And it's going to cost us something to follow Him. I'm going to be honest with you. I would really rather preach a different message. I would far rather tell you, it's okay. It's okay to hold tightly to your lifestyle. It's okay to hold tightly to all of the things that, that you enjoy and to not have to worry about compromising those and just pray for people and love God and read your Bible. Honestly, because I'm a part of the audience too, it would be far easier to preach and receive that message. Wouldn't it feel good to go home with that? It says, keep doing what we're doing. We'll just pray a little more and read the Bible a little more and it'll be okay. That has nothing to do with Jesus. That life has nothing to do with the great movement that Jesus has started. It says, you want to be a part of that, you've got to deny yourself. You've got to be willing to let go of everything. You've got to sell out for what matters most. Today, two things that tower above everything else in the news, the spread of Ebola and the tyranny of ISIL, or ISIS, whichever you call it. And you just think, you know, you can't turn on the news today without hearing about this, this terrorist group that has, I mean, just in lightning fashion, has swept across Syria and northern Iraq and is now threatening Turkey. And people are coming from around the world to take part in this movement. It's amazing how many cities have fallen at their hands. It's just staggering the impact that they've had. Can I just tell you the thing that's most shocking to me about that whole movement? It's estimated that there are only 30,000 people who are part of that movement. 30,000 people. That's like, we have seven or eight times that many people come to arts and crafts for heaven's sake. This little, tiny, I'm talking about globally, the tiny group of people. This is two American divisions in the American military. There are 20 countries who could marshal a military that would squash that number of people like a bug and never bat an eye. It is a tiny group of people. It's like they're holding the world hostage. Do you know how they pull it off? They're sold out. They're completely sold out. They will sacrifice anything, including their lives, for the cause. In comparison to us. Who are going, hmm, what shall we do? It doesn't take a bunch of people to impact the world. 
What it takes is a bunch of commitment from even a small group of people. The story of the book of Acts from the outset is the story of 120 people. It's all there were. But they were sold out to Jesus. They were willing to sacrifice anything. It won't matter what property we get. It won't matter what building we meet in. It won't matter what staff we assemble. It won't matter the gifts that we assemble if we are not a group of people who are sold out to Jesus. Your outline has more stuff on it. I'm not preaching it. This morning, the Spirit just prompted me. The next stuff begins to talk in terms of how to and where do we go from here. It doesn't matter. Just draw a line and call it done right here. Because the Spirit of God is so impressed on me today. Nothing else matters if we don't get this part right. If we don't bring a heart commitment that says, Oh God, if I'm honest, I have to admit, my heart's been hardened. I haven't been concerned about people who are starving and who are dying, who are dying lost, going into a godless, fiery eternity. I haven't been concerned about people who are dying of preventable diseases. I haven't been burdened for people who are in need. I'm not even reaching out to my neighbor. God, my heart's just become hardened and self-centered. And I need you to help me change that. I need you to take that old hard heart out and replace it with your heart. My eyes that have just been locked on to my situation and my stuff, I need you to give me your eyes for the world. I believe God wants to do something extraordinary among us. But for that to happen, He has to do something extraordinary in us first. And it starts at the level of every one of our hearts. Would you join me right now as we bow and go to Him in prayer? God, as a beginning point, we just want to lay our hearts and our lives bare before you and say, search us, O God. Know us through and through. You know what we need. You know the wickedness and the selfishness of our hearts. Please, God, forgive us. Replace our stony, hardened hearts with your heart that cares for broken people, that loves the lost, and that reaches out to people in need. Lord, would you make of us a people who, who care about others? Would you make of us a church that is just sold out to serving you by serving other people? I just want to give you a moment just to pray where you are right now. If, if you're where I am, just needing for God to do a work in your heart, would you just ask Him to do that? Would you ask Him to show you who you could begin to reach out to? Would you ask Him to show you what you need to let go of and just yield to Him? Holy Spirit, would you baptize us with your power and with your holy passion for the kingdom and for the, the Lordship of Christ? Continue the work that you've started in us. Thank you for what you have ahead. We look forward to what you're going to do in our lives as we continue to surrender to you and follow you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.